1: is a Virgin Media Originals podcast
2: series. Hello, you're very welcome to The Tonight Show. With rents continuing to rise and homeowners being warned that higher mortgage payments are on the way, Housing Minister Dara O'Brien is here in studio to discuss. The Aractus Health Committee has written to the Minister for Health requesting delays to any Cabinet decision on the moving of the National Maternity Hospital.
3: We're not just saying that the new hospital can provide all services. We are saying that they must provide all services.
2: Claire Brock meets businesswoman Nora Casey as she shares her journey with Long Covid and the impact it is having on her life.
4: At the moment, I'm thousands into medical fees and I don't know how anybody can access that kind of expertise and specialist help while they're going through Covid.
2: You get in touch on Twitter with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag Tonight VMTV. But first, tonight. The Eratus Health Committee met today and requested further delays to any Cabinet decision on moving the National Maternity Hospital. Well, a little earlier, I spoke to our political correspondent, Gavin Riley, and I began by asking him what more we know from the committee meeting today.
5: Firstly, we learned that the HSE's own lawyers do consider a 299-year lease to be tantamount to owning the property. So it isn't just a political talking point. That is the HSE's legal view as well. Uh, We did technically learn that as a technical point of law, the state won't actually own the building, but it will have exclusive use for the building for as long as the building stands, because it's not going to be there in 299 years. I think most importantly, what we learned was that the state actually does now appear to have some attitude towards making small changes, where the the political attitude for the last week has been Miho Martin saying that there is no substance to any of the complaints. And today, although Miho Martin still had some of that attitude in the Dáil Chamber... At the committee, Stephen Donnelly was a little bit more open-minded. He opened up by saying that he understood why there was good reason why people might be sceptical about the motives of all the parties involved. And although he didn't seem too minded to make any changes, he said he wouldn't rule anything out as to whether there might be some scope to, for example, change or amend the definition of what is clinically appropriate, which is something of a chilling clause that some people have some concerns about. He apparently is now willing to maybe go back and look at making some tweaks there. So where previously there seemed to be no scope to make any changes, now we learn that maybe the government is a little bit more open-minded if that's what's necessary to get this over the line. Uh,
2: There are some at the Health Committee today who have now requested that this decision, which was due at Cabinet next Tuesday, be deferred for another perhaps week, two weeks, who knows. Are the government comfortable with that? Do you think they're going to say yes to that deferral?
5: Well, we won't know for probably a little while because it probably might be next Monday night before the the coalition leaders get together and decide whether it should be on the agenda for the following day. So it's kind of hard to tell. The original signs coming from government buildings this evening are that they're not intending to change tack. But a formal request from an all-party committee, which, by the way, does include government backbenchers, and that is significant too, them asking for some more time does carry some weight. Because when Stephen Donnelly was there today, he said, you know, the whole purpose of, of the delay in the Cabinet decision was to come to a committee like this and to sound out all of those concerns and to maybe address some of the concerns that people had raised and go through chapter and verse and explain whether they are true concerns or not. And. That is something that you can't really do in a short period because it does take the Oroctus Health Committee around a week to get anyone in front of it anyway. So Peter Boylan and Simon McGarr and Stephen Dodds, Senior Counsel, are in front of it tomorrow morning. But it takes time to line up other witnesses and their argument is if the Cabinet goes ahead with this next Tuesday morning, we won't have time to call anyone else in. So if there are more points that need addressing, we do need time to organise hearings and that, on the face of it, does seem like a fairly compelling argument, If, if not for the fact that it may be something of a slippery slope for the Cabinet, then deferring it indefinitely and then maybe... maybe never getting around to making a final call.
2: But Stephen Donnelly did say today, I think he did make it quite clear, that when it comes to the issue of the ownership of the land, that he didn't think that there was any movement possible there. Mm. So if the government's idea was that they spend this sort of two week trying to change people's minds, and that's ultimately one of the big issues, have they won that battle?
5: I don't know if they're ever going to win everyone's minds on that, because for some people, the the principle that in 2022, a century after independence, that you would still be creating and endorsing the idea of voluntary hospitals, just to some people, is just anathema. And even if there weren't a question about religious influence, I think a lot of people would just find that very difficult to reconcile. Um, But if you kind of assume that that is a battle which is lost, which is never going to be reconciled, then the question is, well, are you fully confident that there is no religious influence? And on that today as well, there was a little bit of useful testimony from the HSE lawyers who said it doesn't really matter what the parent companies in the vincent's chain whether there's religious language in their constitutions because the only constitution that matters is that of the new hospital itself and its language is completely secular and there's no question of any religious influence in that so then it goes back to well is there religious influence in the lease and again that goes back to clinically appropriate so that's another issue which remains to be dodged and so I i suspect right now there's never going to be a solution that gets everyone on board But if you could maybe tweak the language around clinically appropriate so that it does stipulate what is allowed as well as what isn't, that might be enough to get a critical mass over the line.
2: We'll now here in studio for more on this story. And the housing crisis is Minister for Housing, Local Government and Heritage, uh, Dara O'Brien. And Minister, just to be clear, we did ask you to debate uh, the issues this evening with the opposition and you have agreed to do that um, next month or at a later date.
6: Which I do so on many occasions and happy to do at any stage. All right, I want to whatsoever.
2: move on to um, the issue I was just discussing there with uh, Gavin Riley, the National Maternity uh, Hospital. There was due to be sign-off on this next Tuesday at Cabinet. It had been delayed for these two weeks. Now the Health Committee is asking for a deferral. What is going to happen? Are you going to be comfortable signing off on this next Tuesday?
6: Well, I support the plan as it is. I just want to say that. Um, Cabinet made a decision to allow a further two weeks for input from the Health Committee and other witnesses because we fully understand, you know, there are people with different views here. Uh, There are concerns that I respect and the government respect and certainly the Taoiseach uh, and all of Cabinet do. But fundamentally here, and what of paramount importance is women's health and the fact that we have a state-of-the-art uh, national maternity hospital that provides all the women's health services that are available under the law. So and for think, you
2: then, Minister, no further delay, no further Well, I think, I,
6: I think in fairness to Minister Donnelly and over the last few days and particularly at the committee today, and we heard from Minister Donnelly, answer answered lots of questions, we heard from other... You know, a lot of expert witnesses as well throughout this process, Dr. Rona Mahoney and others, 52 clinicians from within the National Maternity Hospital in Hollow Street who are fully supportive of this. There are others with contrary views, a smaller number. Their views still need to be respected. What I'm really conscious of is the need to move on to be able to create world class facilities that the women of Ireland deserve. So just to be clear um, it
2: sounds like you're saying no further deferral oh, really. well, I at think this point let's get on my, with my, it.
6: I, I think what would be fair to do would be minister donnelly will obviously report back and will assess the 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 feedback that he's received from the health committee. Uh, he was he was at committee today as you know and and fielded questions and put and put the the government view very very clearly. Uh, and you know but I think we respect other views too. We need to allow time for the Minister to assess what was said to him at committee today, and he'll report back to Cabinet. I think, to be fair, on, it's not an argument, but on the two different sides of this, for want of a better phrase, there everyone is in agreement that we need to drastically improve the physical facilities that are there and available to our women and to our yeah, children. Yeah, and I don't and think
2: that's up for dispute. Well, I'm just wondering, I, is I the think, Cabinet I happy think, to I go think, ahead with this I, I without think what, public support, without opposition well, support, and, in fact, without some of the support of your backbenchers? No,
6: well, I, I think in the main, if you look at the overall and if you look at from the clinicians, and they're the people who, who I really trust... Uh, the vast majority of the HSC board, we heard from the HSC le- legal team earlier on today, the clinicians themselves who are the ones who are caring for women and caring for babies. Uh, the vast bulk of them are, are absolutely okay. supportive and want us to proceed. So, but let me just, let me say this. Of course, we respectfully listen to people who have contrary views. What I would okay. say this though, it is important that opposition parties... Uh, you know, stand up and be responsible here too, because we cannot continue with continued delay upon delay upon delay of the provision of these much-needed crucial services for the women of Ireland.
2: Okay, I want to move on now to the issue of uh, housing refugees and um, providing emergency accommodation. That's the brief of Roderick O'Gorman. The next stage, the sort of medium and long-term accommodation needs of refugees. That's your department.
6: It will be. For, for the displaced persons from Ukraine, absolutely. And we work very closely with Roderick. I only met him this evening before I came out here.
2: OK, so there's 28,000... Indeed. 531, I think, is the most recent figures, uh, Ukrainian refugees here in Ireland. How many of those has your department secured medium or long-term accommodation? Well we've
6: done, the first initial response has been about 20,000 of those uh, displaced persons from Ukraine, our friend from there, from there, have actually been accommodated by the state. The first trial that we did was to assess buildings right the way through to the 26 counties of the Republic. We'd assessed a list of about 529, 89 of which are ready for near immediate use or need some work. We've handed over 89 of them to Roderick's department and to IPAS, who are managing this, and about 70% of those are now occupied. So that's the first tranche. So 70% of the
2: 89? 89.
6: Yeah, and to give you an idea there, because there's about 5,300 bed spaces in those 89 uh, in, in those 89 buildings of the 500 that we went through not all of them and many of them will require a lot of additional work that's the next phase okay some won't be appropriate at all others will be but will require refurbishment and repurposing
2: so, are these sort of vacant buildings that
6: yeah be they're purposing? not they're not social housing stock they're Additional to that, so they could be old convents, old schools, you know, old hotels, those type of things that, but in public ownership right now, they're the first bit. So we've engaged very uh, heavily with the sector across government. Uh, in the private sector as well, to look at other properties that could be used and repurposed. I've already said that we'll be fast tracking where required, the procurement process uh, to do that. So we, we're going to start repurposing uh, very shortly. I've established a vacancy unit within for the emergency response within my own department and in each local authority across the country. So we're certainly very involved from the next phase, which is the more semi-permanent to permanent housing, First step being repurposing and then looking at other, uh, uh, repurposing of existing buildings and then looking at, at, at other solutions. You mentioned there.
2: that it wouldn't be social housing. I'm just wondering what you made of the comments that came from the Sinn Féin TD, Chris Andrews, who said that if people, and I think he was referring to people on the housing list or people waiting for social housing, if they feel one group is being prioritised over another group, then it would put a sledgehammer as the word he used, a sledgehammer through social cohesion. Do you accept that that as we have social housing available?
6: No. Firstly this is an emergency response to a war movement of citizens across Europe that we have not seen since 1945. And it is right and proper that we do everything we can to help our friends from Ukraine. Social housing and provision of social housing is for those on the social housing list. And we're building more social homes this year than we've ever done before in the history of the state. The other response is for our friends from Ukraine. There is no, uh, let's not confuse it, I'm not saying you are Mm Kira, but there are some in politics who wish to blur that line. That is dangerous and it should not even be broached because we've been really, really clear on what we're doing here. We will protect and provide housing for our people through the Housing for All plan. And we will also, and rightly so on a humanitarian basis, provide the additional accommodation that we need for those who are displaced from Ukraine. And so we're doing So is that
2: misinformation that. then that's coming from the opposition?
6: Well, you'd have to ask Chris Andrews himself what he meant by that. Um, I've been very clear with statements with regard to Ukraine last week in the Dáil where many opposition parties uh, put forward views and there was some blurring of the lines from the main opposition party, which I don't welcome. Uh, We should not piss one group of people against the other. Let's remember these, the people from Ukraine. But you'll
2: understand, are, I suppose, Minister, no, that there has been, I suppose, some commentary from those who perhaps have found themselves in need of accommodation, of not been able to get it in this country. Of that there have been some actions by your department in the last couple of weeks that perhaps could have been done in the last couple of years and weren't, that there was a different response, a different sense of well, urgency I've, now. I
6: think that some of the housing, firstly, could I say in relation to repurposing a building and bringing in vacant stock, over the last two years since I took over as Minister, less than two years, I've brought back 6,000 vacant social homes back into use that have been allocated to people on the social housing list. We're delivering affordable housing this year now for the first time in over 15 years and we're providing more social homes than before. So vacancy is a scourge and we're tackling it. What how, many, is how
2: many are still vacant do you reckon?
6: Of, of our social homes, we're... Next week, I'll be announcing a further programme of 2,400 social homes which we'll be bringing back into use. There's not that many left, thankfully. There are some in very state of bad state of disrepair. And let me be very clear, they're for allocations to people on the social housing list. The housing response for those from Ukraine that we need to look after, and we have a moral obligation to do so, will be providing different types of accommodation. Many of these people from Ukraine, when their country is free from the aggressor, will want to go home. But we, in the meantime, We want to make sure that they're welcome here, uh, that we work through the pledges that Roderick O'Gorman's been working through, the very generous pledges that people have offered of their own properties. So let's be clear there's no blurring of the lines between this, we will provide for both.
2: And speaking of those pledges, there has been talk of this 400 euro payment Mm -hmm. that we've made available to people who put you know a room or a house uh, forward. We've heard reports of it on an almost weekly basis for the last Mm -hmm. number of weeks that it's imminent and yet still no announcement what's the situation? I don't think that the... Is that still fr- that on the cards?
6: I would expect I expect it will be. Uh, I don't think, to be fair to the people who have offered pledges here, that it's not uh, for any monetary reasons at all. Uh, there's an absolute realisation when in government that the effraiment of legitimate costs is something that we'll be working through and we I'm will just, work just,
2: through. Sorry sorry to cut across you but okay. I just have heard I suppose a number of politicians say we expect, we expect but well, it's delayed and delayed and well, delayed. See, I'm just I'd wondering be able to, is it, I is would it be on able the cards to, or is it off?
6: I would be able to tell you Kira, if I was bringing that particular measure forward I do know to be very fair that that matter has been actively worked on between two government departments and I, I genuinely expect uh, something very short in that space but let's be fair on this too. The people who have offered pledges and offered homes and rooms in their houses are not haven't done that on the basis of being offered any financial package at all. Uh, no, but we accept
2: rec- a number of those pledges have now been withdrawn. Yeah, for ver- people. Have yeah, but, but
6: I, to I, th- I think for various different reasons and for appropriateness of houses, for locations okay. too as well, uh, we've also found that many of our Ukrainian friends as well, that they have been able to get support through their own networks. So when they've been in hotel settings, they're with their own friends, with their own family. So sometimes that can be difficult to, you know, when we're looking at more semi-permanent, to be moving people to different places. That has to be managed very carefully and sensitively.
2: Okay, I just want to move on to the rental crisis because mm-hmm. we know there's a daft report due out tomorrow. We know the last daft report did not make for pleasant viewing nope. for anybody renting in this mm-hmm. country. I think over 10% increase year on year, and we expect mm-hmm. uh, there to be a further increase uh, tomorrow. I had a look on daft just before we came on air a couple of minutes ago. 870 properties in this entire mm-hmm.
6: country Major currently
2: problem. available mm-hmm. to rent.
6: And that's the main focus. Firstly, in what i did last december was to bring in the 2% rent rent cap in the rent pressure zones for all the existing tenancies that are there and that has that has had an effect in relation to the dampening down of increases in many areas rents are too high and we don't have enough supply We need to build that supply up. So a couple of things that we've done, firstly is to roll out cost rental, which is state-backed affordable long-term rents that the state's providing for, for those above the social housing limits. We've hundreds of tenants in place this year on that people availing of rents 50% below the market. The more of that we do, the better, and we'll continue to do it. Secondly, though, there is an issue and a real one, which is the mom and pop landlords, the individual landlords, who over the last few years have continued to leave the market. I want people in permanent homes. That's why you know uh, we want people to be able to own their own home. That's why the affordability measures like the shared equity scheme, which launches from the 1st of July, is gonna give a lot of renters a real chance to own their own home. But we do need to grapple with the supply issue. So one, um, a couple of positive items in that space. When we look at the housing commencements over the last 12 months, we've 35,000 new commencement notices. Lodged. Yeah, um, and
2: that is very positive, which is, Minister. I do and if agree I could with say, that. within
6: the first quarter, that's the highest figure we've had since 2011, since since those records were tracked. And also, the first quarter of this year, about 5,700 homes completed. Now, we've targeted. But near,
2: that 870 properties currently available in this country is one of the lowest I have ever it, it, seen it, on it, that.
6: It is, a, it is a very serious issue and an issue that will only be addressed by supply. And let's remember where we're coming from. We've had two years of COVID with two very significant construction shutdowns. So there's a reality that we need to get that supply up. And thankfully that is happening. The rental market has shrunk and lots of renters you talk to in any independent survey, about eight in 10 will say, do you know what? I don't want to be renting. I want to be able to own my own home. And that's why my big focus is on affordable housing for that cohort who are actually stuck in a rental trap.
2: Yeah, and you mentioned affordable housing and we saw this um, Cree-Cunhae scheme that we read about yesterday, which Mm. is this subsidy of anywhere between 120 and 144,000. 20,000 up, yeah. Yeah, going to Mm. develop to develop apartment blocks in the cities around Ireland. Not one of those has to be affordable housing.
6: Well, You think, said that's your priority. Well, no, it is, absolutely. And if we just go back a little bit, we've, we have put a, an affordable housing fund of €4 billion Euro in place from this year right the way through over the next over the next four or five years, that will allow local authorities to be able to get subventions to deliver affordable homes, that will allow the and shared many. equity scheme. Well, what we're looking at between now and 2026 on affordable homes, so from this year, 2022, over the next four years, just short of 30,000 new affordable homes, okay, between affordable purchase and affordable rent, delivered in a number of ways affordable
2: purchase and affordable rent because yeah, we did see for- an Irish independent on Monday they had affordable housing uh, numbers for around the yeah. country and they were Do looking you know, at places was, like
6: no, look in fairness and well just
2: to be clear but they looked at somewhere like Kildare, Wicklow, Meath a lot of those commuter towns and they were saying you're talking anywhere between 30 and 50 no, affordable well, houses in, in to fairness, a year
6: in fairness the article that was there and look I, I read it too The that related just purely to what the local authorities will deliver okay about 7,550 what it didn't refer to was that the Shared Equity Scheme will deliver another 8,000. The Land Development Agency will deliver about 5,000 more. Okay. And our Part 5 provisions which have changed, which means any new estate uh, that's built, the 10% social and 10% affordable in that. So it didn't include all those others. It included about a quarter of what okay. we're targeting. Now, if I could say this on the Cree cone if you don't mind, we've had a major issue with developing apartments in our five major cities. We've brownfield sites all over, we've 80,000 unactivated planning permissions. And what this measure is focused on doing on an open call basis, is to be able to subsidize to the benefit of the purchaser, uh, to make sure that those one, that we activate dormant permissions. Sorry, if I just said, I'll sorry, be real no, quick. Just to
2: be clear, the benefit of the purchaser, if are how, not affordable apartments. Well, there's no restriction I'm, on the price. I'm
6: going, to actually, I'm going to actually explain this if I could very quickly and I uh, pre- appreciate that. It's about activating the dormant permissions which haven't been activated. It's about secondly, making sure that we're building these units out for owner occupiers. We've had a lot of criticism over the years about build to rent only, families not living in cities. So what would happen for argument's sake is that where you would have a unit that would have been delivered for 450 or 400,000, that if the subsidy is applied on an open call basis, that it would be for 300,000. And the other affordability measures that I've just mentioned, like shared equity and the help to buy scheme, would actually the 30,000 euro grant would also apply. So it will bring units, about 5,000 apartments, Kira, that would not have been built. Uh, right. In our All five right. cities, just... and we'll and will make them available for owner occupiers, and they will right. be affordable.
2: Uh, I just want to ask you one final sure. thing, uh, Minister, which is the interest rates. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's almost uh, inevitable now that they are going to rise uh, this year, making it more difficult, I suppose, for people to uh, make their mortgage repayments sure. to get their mortgages. Are you concerned about the impact that this is going to have on the
6: market? Look, obviously the ECB is independent, and they and they will and they set the rates. We've had ten years of near of near zero rates. Okay, the indications are that rates might increase might increase slightly. One positive piece within that from looking at mortgage data in the country, about 81% of people in the country now have fixed rate mortgages. So any, you know, they've already made the decision to fix their rates, to give themselves that certainty. Another sizable portion are those, let's say, on tracker mortgages, that are at a very low base. So, of course, rate increases are something that we're gonna to have to manage. Um, and I think that we will. Uh, a lot of the new mortgage lenders that are out there at the moment are offering their long-term fixed rate mortgage, like we are in the, in the local authorities, 20, 25 year fixed okay. rate mortgages. So we will watch it carefully, certainly no question. But the main message is supply is increasing, Affordable houses will be in place this year and, you know, we're making progress in this space and that is a good thing.
2: All right, uh, Minister Daryl O'Brien, thank you for coming to us this evening and I look forward to debating uh, this with the opposition. Absolutely Uh, delighted to. Broader Houser issues in the very near future. Now, after the break, more on today's Health Committee. Do stay with us. You're very welcome back. Well, the Aractas Health Committee has formally asked Minister Stephen Donnelly for a further pause to a Cabinet decision on the plans for the National Maternity Hospital. Well, joining me now for more on this is Fianna Fáil Senator Lisa Chambers and Sinn Féin TD David Cullenan. Let's take a look at some of what was said earlier today.
3: Ireland does not have a good track record when it comes to religion and women's reproductive health. Women are therefore rightly demanding that when it comes to our new national maternity hospital there can be no religious involvement.
7: Religious interference
4: doesn't always appear in nuns with long veils and trapes in the corridors.
3: We're not just saying that the new hospital can provide all services, we are saying that they must. Want flexibility?
4: Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.
3: Provide all services.
4: I really, really dislike this
2: assumption that there's, there's nuns out there who are going to somehow mind-influence me to stop me providing the care. I it is disrespectful I, 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 to our beliefs as doctors, as midwives
1: and as nurses.
3: It is important that, there's a, that, that we listen. It is important that this conversation happens. And Deputy, what I would say is, I wouldn't rule anything out.
2: Um, I want to come to you first, David Cullenan, because uh, you proposed this idea that there should be a further deferral why Well, for a short number
7: of weeks, because we haven't heard from all of the witnesses, we haven't heard from the main players, which are the Saint Vincent's Healthcare Group. They own the land. Uh, one of the core issues here is the ownership of the land. You have to remember that we have a very unusual, very complicated healthcare system in this state. It's a two-tier system, a mix of public and private. We have voluntary hospitals, independent hospitals, HSE hospitals. We have, section, what the we have section. We have section thirty-eight is. and thirty-nine organisations, and what we were promised under Schlaun care was public money, public hospitals. This is the yeah, first hospital.
2: Deputy, what St Vincent's Health Care Group are going to say that is going to change your mind if you and, ultimately and, believe that what should happen is state hospitals and state I'm getting
7: out. to that because what I'm saying is this is the first hospital which will be built since care since we agreed collectively, all parties, that what we want is to move away from voluntary hospitals, we have a clean slate and we want a public hospital built on public land. The land has been transferred to them on the 24th of last month. They now own the land. The minister is telling us that they are not for turning in terms of. Uh, The land going to the state and being gifted to the state we need to hear from them themselves because i think it's really important that if this taxpayer which we will will sign off on a new national maternity hospital at a cost of nearly a billion euro it's really important that we get it right and the the door uh, has been opened because there is now clauses in the frameworks which under certain circumstances does allow the HSE to force the sale of the land um, so the principle of ownership of the land is there but we need to see it happen in reality for me to give Absolute guarantees to everyone.
2: Uh, Lisa Chambers, uh, this uh, deferral that uh, you requested, David Cullinan, has now um, been formally requested by the whole of the uh, Health Committee. And on that, our Fianna Foy colleagues of yours, John Le Hart, Senator Lorraine Clifford-Lee and Cahill Crowe, all agreeing that this should be deferred for another, what, week, two weeks? Who knows?
1: Well, I mean, just to do with the crux of the issue, the two-week deferral, but that doesn't make me up or down. It doesn't really. I don't think it'll make any material difference to, be, to the project, to be honest. But David spoke there about needing to give absolute assurances um, that this is the right project and we should go ahead with it. We have absolute assurances from fifty-two clinicians currently working on the front line in obstetrics and gynaecology at the National Maternity Hospital. They are so frustrated that it's been delayed for 10 years almost already. They want this to go ahead. I trust them and I trust their judgment. But would you Secondly, not like to
2: hear from St. Vincent's Hospital Group themselves on why they are not comfortable with selling the land or gifting the land and why
1: they still want to have any control when it comes to the National Maternity Hospital? Is that not a fair question to ask? Well, well first of all, they've, like, the, the state have engaged extensively with St. Vincent's and now St. Vincent's Holding Group. I'm confident in reading assured because i've listened to those that have been working on this for years that everything is in order so i personally don't feel the need to hear from them i don't think it'll make any material difference this is a good news story as david said we're spending a billion euros to build a state-of-the-art facility for women and babies in this country to take women and children out of a very outdated national maternity hospital do you have any understanding why they still want some element of control here there is no element of control. There's a board of directors. The hospital will have clinical, financial independence to do exactly what is legally permitted to do in the current National Maternity Hospital. The doctors have told us this. There is no way that 50 plus clinicians would stand over the building of a National Maternity Hospital where they didn't have control to do their job properly. They're all confident and reassured that they can yeah, do I don't that. See and, how the, and I have that as well. We're not doctors. But I think we need to listen to those actually working in this space And there are more doctors who have
7: concerns, but... I, but a smaller but, number, but, to okay, be fair. But- I don't see how you can be confident and reassured if you haven't heard from but St Vincent. I, I didn't interrupt. I didn't interrupt what you. Are you, about? you can't be. I'm, I'm worried about the fact that we're establishing a company where directors will come from different companies. We have three companies within one. We'll have this new company established, which will be a subsidiary of St Vincent's Healthcare Group. But they will own it? the land. We're spending a billion euro on a hospital where we won't own the land, and that's for me we will a fundamental. We have a leasehold agreement. That's, I didn't interrupt but, you, Lisa, but in with respect? You, we,
1: we will have a leasehold agreement for 300 years. This building it might be in, in date for fifty to sixty years. So we have and, the land and, Lisa, see, and the building. What, what Lisa for more is doing here? What Lisa yeah, is was, doing? What Lisa is, is doing? is doing is
7: hiding behind government failures. I'm not failure. hiding behind anything. Lisa is hiding behind government failures because the reason why hollow Street is in such a poor state is decades of underinvestment in right. the okay, that your party is involved in. We are. The Rotunda Hospital is in need for investment as well. So I want, I want Lisa. Please answer question. What
1: are you referring? You're not the host of the programme. And
7: let me speak for a second, because this is a really important issue. The government are trying to shut down debate. They've only left one week for the Oireachtas Health Committee to hold hearings. How can we uh, talk to everybody if you only have one is that week? Is
2: a fair accusation that they've shut down debate when they did defer this decision last Tuesday for a fortnight? and, and we've heard minister, nothing but debate for the last 10 days about the it? The Minister Correct.
7: was going into Cabinet last week to seek approval for this. It was only because some in Cabinet decided that they wanted this scrutiny, that uh, it was agreed. But we have one week of a small number of hearings and we're not okay. hearing from all of the stakeholders.
1: your colleagues are also looking for this. But the suggestion, can I just say, the suggestion that the government are trying to shut down debate, we have been debating this for almost 10 years. As I said, two weeks isn't going to make us up or down. It'll make no material difference. This is a good news story. It is the biggest investment that we will see in women's healthcare in this country. The doctors working In this space, on the front line, want this hospital built. I have not heard any good reason from from David Cullinan as to why this shouldn't go ahead. Barre looking for two more weeks to talk more about it. We are going to be discussing
2: this issue, I would imagine, uh, for another couple of weeks or days, certainly, on this programme. But we're going to have to leave it there for now. My panel is going to be staying with me because after the break, Nora Casey on her long COVID journey.
4: Um, My breathlessness was frightening. Um, but my heart was probably the worst, you know. It was like somebody playing ping pong.
2: Now, it's estimated that one in 10 people who are infected with COVID-19 develop long COVID. And following the surge of the Omicron variant, the fear is many more will start to suffer with lingering symptoms. But just how are people affected and what help is there for them? Well, Claire Brock has been finding out. First, she sat down with businesswoman and broadcaster Nora Casey, who is managing new and worrying health challenges since contracting COVID-19 in January.
4: I had COVID in early January, and to be honest, I had a really mild COVID. I think I was often bragging at the time, saying it was just like a cold. I worked through it mostly. I think there was only one day I took to my bed. But I noticed afterwards that I was a bit breathless and I had a lot of headaches. Um, but about five weeks later, I went to my GP, who I hadn't seen for two years. I'm normally very healthy. and. She said, What's wrong with you? And I said, I just can't describe it any better. I'm sick all the time. I've like jelly legs. I feel dizzy. I have terrible, terrible headaches. I'm breathless, very nauseous. And she said, Okay, okay, let's have a look. And she took my blood pressure, and it was 200 over 120, which is critical hypertensive, it's called. So she was immediately concerned and said, you're at risk of a stroke and stay where you are. Let's get the windows open, see if we can get that
0: down. Nora's post-COVID symptoms led to hospitalization weeks later. Over the course of two weeks, they did MRIs on her brain and a battery of tests to look at the lingering symptoms. Things we worry about, the heart, the lungs, the brain, were they all impacted? And My breathlessness was
4: frightening. but my heart was probably the worst, you know. It was like somebody playing ping pong with my, with my body. Like, it kept sending my heart rate shooting through the roof. It still does, you know. Inexplicably, my heart will just start pumping really fast.
0: But it was sudden onset diabetes, now officially diagnosed as type 1 diabetes, which has affected Nora most. So it doesn't really
4: respond to any diet, you know, in fact I fasted maybe for the first week and still my blood sugars were through the roof. And since then, I'm now on um, three or four different drugs um, and my my blood sugars have now started to fall all the time, which is even more worrying I can tell you because I start to shake a lot. I'm shaky today because my bloods are low. And I get really uh, bad, you know, sweats, I feel dizzy. I think I'm going to faint any minute.
0: Nora's taking 15 different drugs to treat the symptoms of long COVID and she must test herself seven times a day to manage her diabetes.
4: I'd say my son Dara is the one that worries the most because when you lose one parent and you've only got one left, you know, everything gets magnified and... And at times, you know, I'm quite a different person. I think I said I'm shaky and it's not nice to see people who are, I feel a little, my confidence is dented. I just don't feel
0: quite right in myself. Uh, So he worries a great deal. You've got the support that you need, but do you think in the country that we are managing people with long COVID, that people who are suffering are getting the supports and the help that they need?
4: At the moment, I'm thousands into medical fees and I don't know how anybody can access that kind of expertise and specialist help while they're going through COVID if they don't have sufficient funds. I mean, it's just, to me, it's just an anathema that we did so much and paid out so much for COVID, but we're completely ignoring all of the people who have long COVID. Um, I I certainly, through my own endeavours, found the right people that I wanted to be looked after by, but that's a very big privilege that I have over and above other people.
0: So how has life uh, changed for you, would you say, Nora, uh, pre-COVID to the life you're living now?
4: Well, I was walking every day. So I'm down to about two walks a week. And I try to do them quite gently because if I try to walk fast, well, not only do I get breathless, but I also use up energy and my blood's full.
0: Nora's still suffering with headaches. She'll also need surgery to remove lymph nodes at the back of her neck
4: body is still fighting it. It still thinks it's got to fight it. So um,
0: it's on high alert all the time. Dr. Jack Lambert, Professor of Medicine and Infectious Disease at the UCD School of Medicine, runs a long COVID clinic.
8: We originally thought, you know, with with the original virus delta wave, people ended up in the hospital ICU. We thought there'd be a lot of lung damage and cardiac damage, but lungs have 100% healed. Uh, Hearts have 100% healed. The thing that hasn't healed is the brain. And then this new variant that's come along, the Omicron is, is causing less heart, less pulmonary, but it's causing a lot of intestinal and a lot of brain inflammation. So patients aren't end up sick in the hospital, but they are ending up with long COVID. And the symptoms they're, you know, they're presenting with, you know, three, six, 12 months down the way, after even a minor infection with, with, with COVID, you know, is kind of brain fog, concentration problems, head pressures sleep disturbances, mood disorders, kind of random pains, tachycardias, the, the whole kind of fight or flight kind of response.
0: And you're finding that it's not differentiating between age necessarily or gender in this regard?
8: Absolutely not. I mean some studies say that it seems to be more prevalent in uh, women and, and uh, but in terms of age we're seeing a whole spectrum of ages. The first wave I saw older people and healthcare workers in the most recent wave in the long COVID clinic, we've been seeing a lot of younger people, their 20s, 30s, 40s, presenting with long COVID, uh, you know, otherwise, you know, very functional, professional people, working, great moms, great everything, totally debilitated, you know, on wheelators, you know, unable to even walk, let alone function in a job and take care of their children. So, so yes, we're seeing a different range of disease now.
0: When it comes to long COVID care and treatment, he believes the state has got the model wrong and needs to redirect its services. Does the state have a plan for dealing with long COVID? And in your opinion, is it adequate?
8: Well, they have an interim plan put together to have pulmonary specialists managing the short-term complications of, of, of long COVID, which don't exist anymore. So I think we really need to rethink, it, rather than putting money into uh, you know, rehab for conditions that don't exist anymore. We we need to keep up with COVID-19. It's a rapidly changing area and we don't have good services put in place uh, for management of these patients.
0: What's your message to the Minister for Health?
8: I think the message is, is we don't have a linked-up service. You know what happens is p- when patients get these conditions, is they they go see a pulmonary specialist, they go see a heart specialist, they go see a neurologist, they go see a pain specialist, they go see a gastroenterologist. We need to have a multidisciplinary team that comes together to provide services. We need psychiatric psychology support. We need physiotherapy support. We we need to kind of have a multidisciplinary team who comes together to support these patients because viruses don't affect just one organ system, they affect many different organ systems. So we need really linked up care and multidisciplinary support. And it should be, and there should be centres of excellence around Ireland led by people with, with the appropriate expertise.
2: Well, Fianna Fáil, Senator Lisa Chambers and Sinn Féin's David Cullinan are still here and we're also joined by Professor Jack Lambert from the UCD School of Medicine, who you just saw in that report with Claire and Nora Casey and the founder of HR Buddy, Damien McCarthy. You're all uh, very welcome to our, the programme and our thanks to Nora Casey for speaking to us. And um, she said there, Lisa, you know, the government spent billions on Covid and yet those with long Covid are being ignored.
1: Yeah, and I actually spoke to Nora about this a couple of weeks ago. She spoke at my Women's Health Conference, so I've spoken to her about her symptoms, and I think... It's, um, it's frightening to see how ill people are from it. Um, and thankfully, most people don't get to that level of, of illness. Um, but I think we're still learning about long COVID um, and the different forms that it comes in. And everyone's very unique in how they, they react to this. Um, so the government's plan is to put in place, um, so acute clinics and long COVID clinics in all of the hospital groups to try and have a, a, a location close to people that they can go to for that specialist care. And many um, of those clinics? The, the intention is to put one into each of the hospital groups um, so that people can get one in the region um, that is the, the, the plan for, for the country. And is there uh, a timeline for those? I don't have a timeline for delivery of those, they are working on that currently uh, and the intention is that that will provide the different types of care that individuals need, um, acknowledging that everyone is in, a unique and individual in and what, in what they require, um, but also acknowledging that we still don't have the full knowledge and that's why the likes of Professor Jack Lambert and then the work that he's doing will feed into that um, because we take from them the expertise and the research that yeah. they have done to inform that policy that is really still in its infancy and still being developed. Um, but the HS have said, uh, David Cullinan,
2: as Lisa said there, that these sort of post-COVID clinics are being established. But in the interim, what are people meant to do? I mean, we hear Nora Casey saying she spent thousands of euro on private health care, but as she said herself, she's in a privileged position to do that. A lot of people simply aren't. So what are the public options?
7: Well I think the most important point that was made was the need for linked up services. So obviously these clinics and acute clinics are really important. Not all of them are established and we have to accelerate their establishment. What's equally important is the role of general practice, primary care, but also community care, because rehab and recovery is a huge part of this. And that is a problem right across the health service. So obviously we have to do more to join up all of those services. There is also a need for employment rights supports. We obviously have to make sure that patients and people get all of the health care supports that they have. So I think we have to accelerate accelerates the rollout of the clinics, but also join it up with primary care and community care. Uh,
2: you mentioned their employment rights, uh, Damien, I don't want to come to you. I mean, are employers aware of long COVID? Are they willing to recognise long COVID? And are they putting policies in place to deal with this?
9: Well, um, I think um, employers are aware of it. I think uh, what's happening at the moment is we're all still learning about long COVID. And I think what is very important, Kira, is that we have strategies in place to educate employers and workplaces to deal with it correctly. Um, the last, I suppose, mentioned of uh, workplace procedures and policies was back in the transitional protocol back in January. Uh, It's now May, there's no mention of long COVID inside the transitional protocol. So we really now we need more joined up thinking and Jack mentions that uh, in in his report there. So
2: there's no guidance there for employers? There
9: isn't really, no. And and we need education, I think, um, especially in small and medium sized workplaces where they don't have the same resources. Larger organizations will find it easier uh, to deal with these types of scenarios because they will have medical and um hr experts at their disposal but um you know small and medium-sized businesses employ uh, the majority of workers in this country over one million and they are the people that need i suppose joined up thinking uh, a planned structure in place to provide advice and guidance and on how to deal with this correctly
2: so you know the big multinationals might have hr teams in place who can deal with this the smaller companies you know likely don't so what could they do and what should they do for their employees and we believe there's one in 10 uh, people in the country who've had COVID, have long COVID, what should they do for these people? Well
9: throughout the pandemic unfortunately you know there has been a wage put between people uh, throughout the pandemic and what employers need to do is be patient, understanding and flexible. Um, Now you also have an issue I would say Kira, whereby Uh, employees are out of work absent at the moment and uh, because of uh, data protection laws, the employer actually isn't aware of what the illness is. So uh, an awful lot of employers aren't actually even aware that their employee is absent because of long COVID.
2: Uh, Jack, it appears when it comes to the issue of long COVID, we're still in our infancy when it comes to understanding it. I mean, I know you had new data which you presented uh, this evening. I think you were hoping to present it to the HSE, but uh, I don't Believe anybody was there. Uh, what does it tell us?
8: Right. Well, 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 we actually collected this data dating back to April of 2020, and we completed the study in June of 2021. And so it's been published for the last year. We just actually presented it all. And what, what it really shows was, was like I said, we thought the complications would be cardiac and lung. Um, But at six months of the people that we followed with long COVID, some of them still had respiratory and cough and those kind of symptoms. By 12 months, all of the breathing problems, all the heart problems, all the lung problems were gone. The thing that was still there one year into the long COVID was brain stuff, you know, so, so, and so, so we've, we've known this for a year. It's not, you know, and then three months later, the guidance came out, interim guidance from the government, um, on, Management along COVID, and they're establishing eight centres led by pulmonary specialists to manage the short-term pulmonary complications. So but you those... feel the priority here is way right. off. Well, is well, it it, it, well. That was the right thing for Delta wave in the first six months. You know, back in 2020. Those were the complications, but things have changed. We're in Omicron. The complications are different now. People have been vaccinated. So no, the issues are not pulmonary and cardiac.
2: So do you feel then the HC isn't listening to people like you and understanding what long COVID really is and how it impacts people?
8: There sometimes sometimes seem to be a disconnect between people that put together the protocols and those in the trenches who are doing the work. And even, even, like I said, that, that data was put together with uh, if you look at the references, it was all references from the UK. They didn't include anything from the studies in Ireland.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a pretty fair assessment. And I'm certainly not going to disagree with pr- Professor, but right. i clearly an expert in his field. And if we have data and evidence to yeah, show yeah. that the injury that sustains or that's the longest injury is brain injury, then we need to direct resources right. there.
8: Yeah, and, and I'm not, like I'm saying, less, this is a rapidly changing field. I'm not disagreeing, but but I'm saying things have changed over the last 18 months. And, and, and we put together a plan. I don't think the plan, you know, the plan is not going to work for you know, the the mass number of people, I think, now have the problems, the brain problems. We just need to kind of redirect some of our resources and some of our plans to deal with the current pandemic of, you know, long covid has changed.
2: Uh, and have other countries dealt with this differently? David, is it your understanding? I know the UK... I'm not sure. I think there's learning
7: plan. all at the time. So the research is obviously evolving all of the time. And I think what we need to do is to learn from Jack's research, research and other research and obviously make sure that that's acted upon by the HSE as well. We need access to information to patients so that patients know what services are available. Those services obviously need to shift given the research that changes all of the time. Employers need access to information, employees need access to information but we also need proper services and i think that joined up services approach that jack talked about
8: is really important and i think your point i I think psychiatric and psychological services have been lost one of the publications we said you know the the gp study that we did showed that a year into it 20 percent still of depression anxiety you know ptsd um all right. drug dependency alcohol dependency
9: problems That's we need right. to kind Impacting of deal with that it, lives.
2: Uh, damien very quickly what is your uh, advice to employees who are are suffering
9: uh to i suppose uh, speak with your employers be open with them and uh, i suppose to employers show support for your employees uh, these are still very challenging times i would have an awful lot of sympathy for employers but as i said earlier they need the backup and supports st- strategic plans in place to help them
2: all right, well, that's it from us this evening. My thanks to uh, my panel here and all of my guests from the late team here. It's good night and do take care.
0: This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.